Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey Pi-Pi Knockreiner. Pi-Pi is not even close to the most important part of the story, but I just think it's a funny name, especially the way it's spelled. Genuinely is. On today's episode, we'll be chatting about PyPy and other package indexes. A uh, quick update on the latest in ransomware attacks, and then go over a Zoom zero-click vulnerability uh, discovered by Google Project Zero. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and uh, zoom our way in. All your planes belong to us. For now. So let's start this week with the first story where in the world of software development, uh, developers use established third parties pretty frequently, uh, typically open open source libraries, and really it's just all about saving time. Uh, Basically boils down to there's no real sense in trying to reinvent the wheel if someone's already done it before. And typically these libraries are maintained in a package index like uh, NPM, the node package manager for JavaScript. Uh, PyPI or the Python package index for Python, where as a developer, um, you can basically install them with a pretty simple command and they come all prepackaged and ready to go. Like with Python, it's pip install package name. NPM, it's npm install package name. Really simple to use. There's a lot of um, jokes in development now that development is no longer writing lines of code. It's searching for the package that does it and including that and just grabbing their functions and doing it. I mean, it's basically, I, I agree entirely. I mean, there is still obviously code writing, but I'd say the bulk of the stuff I've done is basically the code I write is gluing the packages that I'm using together, basically. Um, so these listings on these package indexes, they typically point back to a open source repository because in general, they are all open source. Um, basically gives developers a way to review the source code for like due diligence if they want to go that far or even try and hunt down and try and resolve bugs as an example. Like if they encounter an issue, they can go figure out exactly what's causing it potentially and either make their own workaround or submit a pull request to that library to get it fixed for everyone. Um, But also more often than not, a lot of these packages actually go dormant for many years. Uh, like even the popular ones, like they won't receive updates for several years and they will keep chugging along because the reality is they work. And even as people discover new edge cases that might not work with the current one for the bulk of it, like they do at least continue to work with old installations or the old use cases before the developer dropped off the face of the earth. And we've seen time and time again that that's actually, understandably, a pretty big security risk in some cases. Um, in fact, The first story we're chatting about today is exactly because of one of those, where one of those Python packages, uh, it's called CTX, uh, which is a pretty simple package. It basically just allows developers to use data structures in Python that are similar to other languages like JavaScript that aren't normally native in Python. And a lot of times, some of these packages do exactly that. Uh, There's, I guess, before we jump into the story, there's another good example of this one called CoreJS in JavaScript, which is basically a way to... Um, backport a lot of JavaScript's newer features into browsers that don't uh, necessarily support those new features. So in this case, CTX basically allows developers to access certain data structures in a way that's uh, at least more modern than Python's native way of doing it. It's a pretty popular package. It's got 20,000 weekly average downloads. 
Uh, all of this despite not having received a single update in over seven years. 2014, crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, so uh, on Saturday, I guess nine days ago Saturday, by the time you're listening to this, um, a user going by the username Sock Puppets on Reddit uh, posted to the Python subreddit that this CTX package had just received a new release for the first time in seven years. The bulk of his post was basically a title to that linking to the new release. Um, so the following Tuesday, another Reddit user noted that the GitHub repository tied to it did not reflect any of that newly released package and showed still no signs of activity in eight years in that case. So basically, it set off some alarm bells in that guy's head. Um, he went and did some digging um, and found out, like after downloading this new package, that someone had inserted malicious code that executes every time you use the main function in this package to basically steal all of your local environment variables, which is typically where developers and applications store sensitive information like API keys and secrets. It encodes them and it shoots them off to a Heroku bucket uh, that literally is called something something hacked. Uh, so this malicious code had been inserted not just into this new release, but backdated into every single old release of the package too. Uh, people noticed that uh, whoever had done this attack had basically deleted all the old versions and re-uploaded them uh, with the same old version numbers, but with this code inserted. Uh, the difference being, if you look at them, instead of being published in like 2014, it was published in 2022 now. Um, so another researcher on Twitter actually found a PHP package called PHP ass. Wow. Okay. PH pass, I think is probably go. the more PH appropriate pass way is to do the it. better, <laughs> the better way to say that. Um, also appear to have very similar code that stole credentials using similar methods and sent them to a Heroku endpoint as well, too. So the Reddit users in this case were all quick to call out this sock puppets guy and also just completely dox him. Uh, found their, his other alternative Reddit usernames, his personal email, his LinkedIn profile basically all identifying him as a uh, Istanbul-based, quote-unquote, security researcher. Um, so Bleeping Computer was one of the first people to kind of break this story, and they actually got in touch with this guy, again, because all his personal information was freely available. It didn't really attempt to hide his tracks, I suppose, other than deleting that Reddit account and, uh, well, getting his other one banned in part of the process. Uh, but Bleeping Computer got a hold of them, uh, and he said he was a it was a part of a bug bounty exercise and that no malicious activity was intended and that his rationale for stealing all of these tokens basically was to, quote, demonstrate the maximum impact of the exploit. And he actually submitted it all to HackerOne, which HackerOne promptly closed the report as a duplicate. So let's pause here for a second. This is actually kind of nuts. Like you and I are very firmly uh, for ethical security researchers and uh, vulnerability analysts and bug bounty hunters. Like we run a private bug bounty program for a lot of our um, products and services. We work with external researchers very frequently, just working for a vendor. This is way over the line, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the general th consensus is do no harm and don't do any sort of POC that has a negative effect without permission. Like uh, a different kind of vulnerability here, but you could have put... <laughs> 
you know, a little bit of code in the library that people downloaded that had a comment of hacked, you're hacked or something like that. Or like if you're exploiting a buffer overflow, you do it to spawn calculator, not to do a, a keylogger and backdoor where you're uploading data. So, so the fact that he, th there's a lot of stuff. You know, ultimately, you know, this made an external web connection and it could have just made a web connection to a place that had a counter. So he had a page he could, there's things he could have done without actually stealing a thousand keys. The environment variables. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. And he, apparently there's a thousand, over a thousand keys that he, he took to do this. I mean, the other argument is you'd only, well, I guess you have no control once you have the code. It's just going to happen with everyone that downloads the package. But there were easier ways to do this. That said, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think he's, I don't think he's a black hat though. I, I mean, I think he's acting like a black hat, but I do believe he is part of many bug bounties. Uh, I guess we can't, can't tell his intention, but it was researcher. just a, a dumb choice. <laughs> it seems like it was a very dumb choice. He has a medium post. I think we'll talk about how it did it. And he does outline some of that on his own medium post, but yeah, I'm not sure how it's going to help his, his future it's tough like because you know uh, we'll talk about how he actually did it which is interesting and you know it's some issues that we've talked about historically on here as well too um but like there is a line that you just don't cross when it comes to like you said do no harm and there are so many other ways to have proven this type of vulnerability without inserting code to steal people's credentials basically and that like if i were a user of one of these packages or like if this were against a like a private organization or something like this definitely crosses into the you literally just hacked us this is like malicious activity this is not research activity but anyways let's talk about how we actually managed to take over the the python one and the php one as well too um so the python package uh, ctx he actually did this by um, finding out that the original maintainer of it who has been dropped off the face of the earth for the last year or eight years, uh, had signed up for their Python package index uh, account using a email attached to a custom domain that they had registered. Like imagine if I set up mark.com, set up my email as like me at mark.com and use that to register for the Python package index that hosts all this stuff. Um, so the researcher uh, was able to go register that domain since it had expired recreate the email and basically just submit a forgot password request and then use that to log into the account. Uh, this is like a pretty serious issue when it comes to packages out there, like package uh, indexes out there. This isn't the first time someone has done something like this. In fact, he found it because he had an automated tool that basically just goes through all these packages and looks for domains attached to emails that are expired. It seems like a really simple way to get in. And this isn't something where like, MFA will even necessarily protect you because at this point in time, like you are effectively the owner of that email and that domain. So even going through support channels, you'd be able to potentially get like tokens removed and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's one of those simple things that it's just an awareness. I think anyone that's grown up with the internet, I raise my hand. We make accounts 20 years ago that we forget about, right? I mean, this is a developer who stopped handling something for eight years, but I have so many email addresses from the past. I've registered some domains and then stopped using them. 
if and if you're a developer and you attach that to repositories, that's a that's a risk. So it's a pretty s surprisingly simple thing, but we got to remember that some of these old email addresses and domains do have this unusual value. So you have to have a plan to either remove them from whatever other things they're connected to, or keep them updated even when you're not using them. Yeah, and the other one, so uh, for the uh, PHP package that you took over, used a process called repo jacking, where basically, all, like I mentioned earlier, all of these packages are backed up by an open source repository, usually on GitHub. And in the case of this one, the original owner had basically deleted their GitHub account. And so this researcher was able to go in and recreate the GitHub and use that to push a new update to the package. And like these both highlight one big issue with developers relying on very useful, I might add, third-party libraries to handle a lot of stuff. Is that there isn't really a good process for like managing these libraries if something happens to the developer. There was one, I think it was actually CoreJS, which is why that came to mind, where the developer went to like prison for a year or something like that. And because of that, they were not able to keep it maintained. Like there isn't a good process for uh, gracefully transitioning ownership of a package to another developer, at least not a well-established one. Like a lot of these package indexes like NPM, uh, like the administrators of them will potentially under certain circumstances, uh, stances migrate something over, but there isn't like, there's not an agreed upon like way to really do it, which yeah. ends up with repos like this eight years old that are ripe for the taking basically. And I, I think because it's just become long-term, we're starting to reach, I mean, open source, those of us, me included, love the idea, the theory of it, uh, the, you know, a hobbyist coming together to make something useful and sharing it with the community. But the issue with anything like that, people get bored of hobbies and move on, like you say, or go to jail. And because of what you said, there's no easy <laughs> those way. Those two options. Yeah, only those two things. <laughs> <laughs> get hit by a button. It's just, I don't think... We we talk about how good open source is, but when there's no financial incentive to keep it maintained for whatever the reason is that one user no longer maintains it, it's we. I, I think in the past we never realized the repercussions you know, of just down to the security level that other people could hijack something that. <laughs> and by the way, I don't think CTX is the only thing that's a super common thing that hasn't been touched in eight years. There's tons of just basic open source libraries that you know probably very useful still, but don't really need updates because they do one thing and one thing well. So yeah, no, it's interesting. I definitely think the open source communities, at least the repositories, need to find some way to put, as you suggest, some sort of procedure around a transfer of ownership or maintenance or, or tagging on repositories that aren't being maintained well by the authors. Because right now, like the one of the established like solutions, and I use that word very loosely, is typically there are people that are willing to take over ownership until they get burned out and quit too. And they can fork that process or fork that repository and set up a new package like in this case, like let's say CTX next or CTX new or something. But the yeah. issue is you still got all those the old, old applications that are still using the old CTX as a dependency that might not know this new one exists. Like maybe they just 
leave it chugging along as it continues to work, but maybe they've got an auto update process where if someone were to take over that old one and still grabbing the like old this, package. Yeah. Exactly. So like there isn't really a good solution unless we have some sort of like defined criteria of, you know, if there hasn't been development work in X number of years and you're uncontactable after X number of months after that, then hand it over to like, I don't know, a user pool voted new developer to keep the process going if i would vote i i do think it's the repos that have to maintain it you know it's the the npms and PyPies or whoever because someone has to make the choice of what you just said of adding some tag some timeout some expiration date where if a repo doesn't have a its real owner do anything for a long time that is somehow noticed by them and they do something to make sure the next newest one is preferred so I do, I, I, you know, it's a hard problem to solve, like you say, but I actually think that in this case, the responsibility probably, I feel like the aggregator of all of these are a good place to solve it. Because I don't think uh, when you have a bunch of people doing open source, I don't think you're going to, they're doing it for free. You're not going to get much work from them necessarily, but the repos can I maybe agree. do something about it. And it's a problem that does need to be solved soon. Like there are yeah. tens of millions of applications that use different libraries out there through these repositories. This, this is, is a yeah. relatively easy supply chain. To the, the, this them. is far from the first time we've seen open source libraries get trojanized like this, but it's accelerating is what I feel. Supply chain attacks really are the focus. I think one of the themes in the recent Verizon data breach report is they're starting to talk about the growth in supply chain and third-party partner attacks. So I, I agree with you. It's This isn't a new problem. But it's now a problem that I think malicious actors are really paying attention to because it's kind of the new, we, we fixed a lot of direct things. So this is kind of the newest, lowest hanging fruit. So yeah, I hope we fix it soon rather than wait another 10 years for another one. Because as a developer, this one's like a pretty tough nut to crack. Like depending on the size of the development team, I don't think it's necessarily realistic to manually inspect every single update that ha like typically most teams will read the release notes look for anything potentially breaking and maybe do some code analysis on that but otherwise if it's just like a simple maintenance fix with nothing yeah breaking that's in the a release sad notes, truth don't review the code the ivory tower of any time you touch any source code you ought to review it to know what you're getting into it, it sounds good but i agree with you i mean these libraries exist forever some of them are yeah I, I agree. I, I assume a lot of vendors who happen to use open source may not look at every new line, let alone have audited the full lines of the original library when they first got it either. So so one of the solutions that I did see advertised, this is probably a few months ago during a similar style attack, was using something like PGP signing, where you can already sign commits in a source code repository. Like if you look at any of like my open source projects I have, Every single one of them is signed by a PGP key that I own. And so if someone were to take over my email account or take over my GitHub account, like in theory, they shouldn't have my PGP key, so they wouldn't be able to sign new ones. And so using something similar in package indexes where every package is signed by a PGP key, so that if the account is taken over or the repo is taken over, unless it's literally from malware on that developer's laptop, they wouldn't be able to sign those new packages. And then you could set up some mechanism where as you are installing an update to it, if suddenly it's not signed or it's signed with a different key, then you flip in a, like an alarm or an alert and say, hey, looks like this is signed by a new PGP key. Maybe you should manually Pick review it or something like yeah, that. Yeah. That, that sounds isn't like, like it's 
it's a good solution. I don't think it's perfect because in theory, someone could like sign it with a new key with a legitimate update and then like six months down the line, sign a malicious one where you've already gone through that acceptance. But like, I feel like that would solve at least a few of the the very easy to exploit issues with this whole system. It at uh, least raises the bar. I, I, I yeah. think I agree. It raises the bar quite a bit. The attacker would and have it already to like that piggybacks off of mechanisms that developers are used to. Like a lot of developers sign their pushes and their pull requests with their keys, and like so they already have mechanisms similar like adjacent mechanisms to signing a package and uploading it. So I'd like to see something like that really pushed heavily. Uh, we'll see if I, something's got to give because. Like this is like the, the the wild west frontier of being able to potentially launch a pretty devastating supply chain attack against tens of thousands of applications out there. Million, millions of people. You, you said twenty thousand a week, but something like three million over time. So yeah, right. <laughs> downloads. <nuts>. That is. <laughs> um. Anyways, so moving on to the next story, bit of a short one here, but still kind of interesting. Uh, where last Wednesday the low cost Indian airline SpiceJet. Uh, suffered from a service interruption caused by a ransomware outbreak across their IT systems. And during the incident, basically all their planes were grounded. Uh, only the home page on their website worked. Every other page and every other system was uh, apparently failing. Uh, it's still, as of this recording, over a day later, and they're still recovering from the impacts of the attack and canceling flights. And like the airline industry is no stranger to IT-based service disruptions. Like I'm a pretty happy Delta customer, but I recognize that at least once a year, their planes are going to get canceled for a day as Atlanta goes down from some stupid cyber incident. Like It feels like there's a lot of reliance, at least in the airline industry on, I mean, it, understandably, it's a everywhere. lot of reliance on it. Yeah. It's everywhere. I think I, that that's the scary thing with ransomware in IT and why cybersecurity is so important is I don't think you know, like I, I think you and me are not surprised by this. Yes, we haven't had a headline yet until now that ransomware knocked out an airline for a day and stopped flights, but we have had it that it knocked out hospitals for days and moved patients, and everything from our traffic lights to garbage, like it's the computers is behind all of this. <laughs> I mean, there's that's it, 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 the truth. I mean, we is if technology stopped working we would have to remember how to do a lot of things <laughs> manually and i think it would be a nightmare so it's it's really not overly surprising it's like surprising that people didn't expect it it is it is cra like it's it's crazy to see it happen though and it re makes you realize you know the teetering edge of if just a basic commercial ransomware by the way i don't think they know what what variant yet we don't know if it's a targeted attack or if they just were part of some you know uh, untargeted attack but if if just ransomware can take down critical systems so easily which we've seen repeatedly that it seems to be the case we definitely need to rethink uh, it because society depends so much on technology for almost everything we do now. Now, see, and I thought actually the airline industry might be immune to this style of uh, incident because I'm old pretty systems. certain the bulk of their systems run on like old like MS DOS. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they do. They are known for old systems, aren't they? <laughs> but hey, everyone updates eventually. Yeah, Maybe they just updated. Maybe that's a new security. Use old stuff that way you'll survive a cyber attack. 
is there like is there some security strategies in there where like at some point it becomes so old that it falls off a cliff and is no longer favorably targeted by i've seen jokes about vms vac systems like they still exist in universities and some but you don't see many attacks against them anymore (laughs) yeah Maybe that's uh, a strategy. Time for everyone to go back and install Windows Millennium <laughs> Edition, and now you're safe from. Now the problem is you'll be much more security. secure, but you'll be relying on technology that is old, so you won't get the benefit of everything new, all, all the feature capability. That is a good point. Thirty-two yeah, bit only, so I hope you don't need to open more than two Firefox tabs. Oh shoot! Tabs. When we're talking VMS facts, it could be eight and sixteen bit. Mark, <laughs> I'm I'm talking old crap. Oh, nothing for me exists before the year like 2000, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, it's nuts. At least planes weren't falling out of the air because of ransomware. That would really suck. But I think uh, that would be nuts. Like yeah. I, I imagine Buzzfeed is just waiting for that headline of someone installed ransomware on their flight by hacking the <laughs> communication or the entertainment system. We did see that one fantastic DEF CON. There was a presentation. Maybe it was just me, but I wrote about it. Uh, it was years ago. But someone starting with, by the way, the entertainment system was which the first thing, you know, because you connect to their online Wi-Fi to get the entertainment. They actually mapped the entire segmented plane. So the plane had a segmented network. The entertainment system was segmented, but he basically did find rules that allowed certain things to the next system, which if I remember right, was like flight attendant information. And, and that system was disconnected from the actual airline system that does a lot of fly-by-wire and other things. But the point is, they were segmented, but they were all connected in certain ways. And once he learned enough about them, he could at least hop through some of those. So I actually think the day and age where just like the car hack where, you know, you connect or United uh, Video, by the way, I, I like United and Delta. I'm just not picking on anyone in particular might be the way with one little mistake in the firewall and segmentation that you get onto the next networks that give you more control than than we'd once I didn't realize that uh, United had new enough planes to have entertainment systems ouch there's Mr. Diamond <laughs> Delta crapping on my my carrier of choice I speak as someone that flies <laughs> Delta's 737-800s built in like the 1980s fairly frequently so Back when <laughs> back when United, I think they bought Continental, there's at least a small fleet upgrade where half the planes were a little newer. Yeah, half. <laughs> but that was also back in the 2000s. So. Yeah, so now they're outdated again. <laughs> Anyways, enough digging on airlines. Maybe they should focus a little of their attention on cybersecurity to uh, not get hit by ransomware or at least recover <laughs> relatively quickly. Because, man, I mean, even a budget airline, I imagine, is just hemorrhaging money from something like this of not getting planes in the air. It's not exactly a a cheap endeavor, even for a smaller airline to run. And when you're not actually flying, that's yeah, you lose money quite a bit quickly. more than any cybersecurity budget would potentially be, I bet. And if you read this article, there's people were all over Twitter as they were sitting on these planes waiting. So it was not a good PR day for SpiceJet. No, but if they're anything like Spirit, they probably don't care. But um bum All right, that's enough of the airline digs. Uh, Moving on to the last story then. Um, So actually, when I was researching this, I assumed it was an update for the Zoom client, but I'm realizing now that the issue we're about to talk about might maybe actually a server-side fix. But long story short, make sure you are running on the latest version of the Zoom client just in case, uh, because they just resolved a zero-click remote code execution vulnerability 
uh, in their overall system. Uh, it was originally discovered by a researcher at Google Project Zero, uh, which means that the details were released about a month after the actual software fix, uh, which was just a few days ago for the release. I think they patched it on their servers back in late April, uh, according to the Project Zero uh, post. So the vulnerability is pretty dang serious in that it doesn't require any user interaction whatsoever. Basically, the attacker just needs to be able to send a message to the victim uh, over Zoom chat, which uses the XMPP protocol. So XMPP being a messaging protocol based on XML, uh, where you send short little bits of XML called stanzas over a stream connection. Can I add a little caveat to all of this? Very serious vulnerability, no user interaction. Once the attacker is on your Zoom call, there's all kinds of security controls to keep people you don't want off your Zoom calls from passwords to holding rooms to, you know, early in the Zoom days, it was pretty easy to do whatever they call, what was it, Zoom bombing, where you would find unprotected Zoom calls that any anonymous person could just join. And by the way, if that were still super easy, uh, this would be a disastrous vulnerability for sure if people were exploiting it. But I will say the the only caveat, it's not user interaction, but it can only be someone launching the attack that's on your Zoom call with chat. So you say that, but did you just get a, I guess you, you can chat outside a Zoom call, but it has to be accepted by the recipient. You may or may not have just gotten a chat request from me over Zoom, Corey if you your zoom account is through your corporate email address but anyways yes there are protections like you said where in general you shouldn't be able to receive unsolicited chat messages from other people without jumping through some sort of acceptance along the way um, but if you were to accept that this is a pretty dang serious flaw um, it basically boils down to a few kind of key issues with how zoom has these communications set up uh, so first, it sends client messages on the same stream as control messages to Zoom's server. So basically, the communications that you're sending, the calls you're on, all travel through the same stream and XML processing as the control messages that say, let Zoom know where to connect to or instructed if there's an update available or not. Um, the XML content is also entirely controlled by the client and is forwarded via the server to the receiving victim client as well too, fully intact as long as it passes validation on that server. Meaning as an attacker, uh, if I control what communications my Zoom client sends out and I'm able to pass that validation, um, I can send whatever the heck I want to someone else then too. Um, so uh, Zoom, this issue with Zoom spawns from using a different XML parsing library uh, then on the clients versus the server, basically two different libraries and potentially two different languages. And because of that, they actually parse XML in slightly different ways. In fact, when it comes to handling UTF-8 encoding differently, um, it uh, can parse out special characters differently on the client side than the server side. Basically, one of them goes like character by character. The other one will potentially reset its parsing uh, once it encounters a new tag within the actual XML. Uh, so Google calls this stanza smuggling. Um, and they found that they could abuse this, basically the error control messages and some of this Zoom smuggling to force Zoom to switch control servers to a server under the attacker's control, basically giving them a man in the middle proxy for the actual communications. So 
if you were someone that was on a Zoom call, um, as Corey's pointing out, it does seem isolated to a Zoom call, um, and then received a message from someone, everything will continue looking like it was normal on your end. Uh, but the attacker can then force your client to connect through their server, which then gives them access to those control communications as well, too. Um, so Google, as part of their POC, um, tricked the Zoom client into thinking there was an update available that it would automatically download and execute. There's a few protections that Zoom and many applications actually have to protect against that, like code signing and checking the hash of the files to make sure that it's valid. So in fact, with all modern versions of Zoom, basically these upgrades come as a executable uh, called install.exe that is signed with Zoom's development certificate and a associated custom binary file ends in .cab, and that install.exe is supposed to check the hash of that binary, that cab file, to make sure it's valid before installing it. Uh, what, the Zoom, or what the Google researcher found, though, was that you could actually use an old version of the installer that was still legitimately signed by Zoom, but that old version, .4.4 from 2019, doesn't check the associated cab files hash. I uh, call it a downgrade, a downgrade attack. attack. By the way, another example you might remember if you ever listen to our Kaseya stuff is part of the loading that ransomware actually wasn't loading it directly, but was loading a old version of Microsoft Defender, legitimate version, but one that didn't have fixes that allowed them to then do DLL hijacking. The point being is it's interesting to see this downgrading of they do have checks, they're security checks for signing of any code, but if you can forcefully use a legitimate older version, it might open up new doors for you, which I'm sure yeah. you'll share the new door in a moment. <laughs> and so in this case, the POC was basically, they used that old install.exe to drop a cat file that all it did was just open up calc.exe, uh, just as a proof of concept. But using that same control flow, you could basically run any executable you want. So install a backdoor or set up a, a like a ransomware attack or something like that. By the way, Mr. Sock Puppet, you heard, right? Calc.exe, <laughs> not yes. Mimikatz or Trojan.screwu, calc.exe. That, that's how POCs work. Just saying. Exactly. At least good guy good POCs. News is, <laughs> good news is it has been patched. Uh, Zoom actually hopped on it really quickly, according to the disclosure timeline, and Google waited around 30 days or so to release these details of the attack. And so I think all it's, in all, is it both the server and the client? We probably got a client patch too, yep. uh, yeah, as well. Yep. So if you are a Zoom user, as you most likely are, considering it's 2022 and we're hopefully on the tail end of a pandemic where everyone had to use Zoom at some point in time, make sure you are running the latest version. Uh, they did at least patch their server code, which doesn't require any interaction from you as well, too. I do really find, and it kind of ties with our, our talking about open source libraries, but the open source mismatch or, or the library mismatch in a single vendor product. I mean, I can see why it happens. I, I forget the name, but basically the library, the XML parser used on the server side sounds like a much faster one, which seems necessary if you have a web server, you're doing things in a different way. So I can totally see why that one was much better for a server and then for some other reason they picked a different for the client. But shoot, as we know, a lot of, you know, 
code vulnerability, software vulnerabilities, it's about injecting something that screws the code up. So parsing is really, really important. How you parse, how you handle meta characters, how you do that stuff is really important. So it just randomly made me think that I'm sure there's lots of packages where the client or server does generally the same thing, but might be using a different library to do it, which has these parsing mismatches. So I'm sure this researcher is probably looking into that across the board, but this sort of parser differences within the same product is kind of an interesting avenue of research, in my opinion. And it's funny because like, it's not like Zoom advertises which parsing oh, no library one they use on yeah, the server. No one would. Yeah. And so you'll notice if you read Google Project Zero's post about this, like the researcher even goes, we believe it is this just based off our research and digging into it. So they clearly have a very strong understanding of XML parsing libraries to be able to make that assumption just based off of how it handles certain, I assume, messages that uh, stuck through it. Yeah, yeah. if you've ever handled buffer overflow, sometimes it's a very much uh, experimental thing where you have to figure out dynamically, you don't know how the parser's doing things, so you have to send it characters and see what happens. And I, since parsing code, to, uh, since a lot of vulnerabilities are trying to sneak interesting stuff in there, I just, I think security researchers are probably among the best in knowing how parsers work. So probably a challenge, but I'm not surprised they were able to guesstimate the parser because I'm sure they deal with this type of thing a lot. Yeah. And honestly, like the researchers at Google as a part of Google Project Zero are some of the dang smartest people oh, I've sure. ever seen based off the research. It's insane. Well, I don't uh, always love... Uh, Tart, what's his name? Tavis Ormandy. Some of a few of their disclosure practices, they are undeniably some of the names they have on that team are among the best researchers for sure. I can't yep, so deny their skill. Definitely worth following along their research if it's something interesting to you. Um, but in this case, yeah, again, really cool and good find by them. And glad that Zoom was able to get it fixed uh, pretty dang quickly too. Overall, a win and great research. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey's at SecAdept, and the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Our reviews go up to 11, but we'll accept 10s. <laughs>